0: i mm-hmm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. It is the 5th of August, day number 8 in the month of Menachem Av. Tonight is actually Tisha B'Av, but we observe Tisha B'Av this year on a Saturday night and Sunday because tonight is, of course, Shabbos. It's Erev Shabbos, Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos, Chazon. Good to be on the same Parsha schedule between Israel and the Diaspora. Uh, the Megillah, the Megillah, oh well, yeah, actually, yeah, there is a Megillah tomorrow night, Megillah Echa, but the fast will begin uh, at uh, sunset tomorrow night. And then the Megillah Echa is red. Sunday is, of course, the observance of Tishabov with all the restrictions and all of the uh, Tisha B'Av uh, laws and customs. Candle lighting on this Erev Shabbos in New York is 746. That's 746. And to make sure you know when things start where you are. As um, we are speaking to so many different communities and neighborhoods around the world on this Friday morning Erev Shabbos. The uh, bulk of our uh, nine days programming has been the uh, lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine, information about them at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, Uh, We're going to try to play in its entirety the lecture about uh, the Mishnah Brura and the history of the Mishnah Brura as an essential classic in the uh, books and the works and the Sfarim of our history. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Friday morning broadcast, you're listening to a nine days format at J.M. in the A.M.
2: In this uh, series of lectures, I'm discussing books that uh, really made a great difference in Jewish life and Jewish history. We're always uh, aware that people make a great difference, but there are some times that the book, a certain book published at a certain time for a specific reason, also makes a great difference. And today's book, uh, The Mission of Brura, uh really is a sea change in Jewish life. It has to be seen that way. There was an article uh, in uh, Tradition uh, 10 or 12 years ago by uh, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. And uh, in that article, he uh, pointed out, Uh, the change that has happened in the Jewish Orthodox world over the past 50, 80, maybe even 100 years. Orthodoxy changed from being a societal religion, meaning everybody doing what everybody else does. So if all the stores are closed on Shabbat, so my store is also closed on Shabbat. If everybody in town eats kosher, I eat kosher. It's uh, what I called uh, Judaism that was a mile wide and an inch deep. And that Judaism did not survive the onslaught of the Haskalah, of secular Zionism, of the left and it did not survive the onslaught of American assimilation in the United States, and it did not survive here in Israel. Uh, The traditional Jew uh, had uh, non-traditional children and perhaps even anti-traditional grandchildren. Because of that onslaught, and because of the fact that the rabbis saw the Jewish world slipping away in front of their eyes, and we're talking the 1800s, and we're talking Lithuania, Poland, the Ukraine, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Kansas City. So because of that, the entire focus of orthodoxy changed, and it became a book-oriented religion. And the book became the major guiding influence in Orthodox Jewish life. It has to be said that uh, 90%, maybe more, of Eastern European Jewry were not book Jews. They were, uh, the men were uh, literate, the women were illiterate. And uh, even the men, uh, very few were Talmudic scholars, a small percentage of the Jewish world. And so therefore, uh, because of this, this is a completely different orientation. And that's the orientation that we are in today, where again, how we behave and what rules we follow And what halachot we observe are influenced mainly by books and not by people. In fact, uh, many times the same people who write the books don't follow what the book says in certain instances because of the fact that they, uh, so to speak, are more flexible than the book, but they'll never put it in writing. They'll tell you what to do orally, but they'll never put it in writing, which puts uh, uh, which puts the matter at risk, as you can well imagine. The Gon of Vilna uh, was the really the prime person that understood the changing Jewish world. The Ghosn saw what Haskalah would do. He was almost a prophet in that area. He said that the first Maskilim are wonderful, observant Jews, and they just want Hebrew and the Tanakh and uh, needed reforms in the uh, Jewish educational system, all of which were good. But the second generation uh, will... uh, undermine the authority of the rabbis. The third generation will deny religion. The fourth generation will bring about assimilation, which was prophetic. They tell a great story about the, uh, in Vilna, in the 1740s, the leading maskil in town, the head of the Haskalah, who was a very, very uh, scholarly uh, person. So he passed away. And he passed away, so the uh, Heber Kedisha said to the Magid in town that he has to come and say the Hesped. He has to eulogize uh, the person who died. The Magid was not anxious to do that, but he was under great pressure from uh, the people who ran the Heber Kedisha, and he really had to listen to them. So he got up at the Hespert and he said, this is the first Moskiel that I have to eulogize. So I really don't know what to say. But if a lot of other masculine will die, I'll get the hang of what to say. <laughs> well, so uh, the Haskalah, uh, in the middle of the 1700s, which was uh, a carryover from German Haskalah, which later became German Reform, uh, penetrated deep into Lithuanian Jewish society. And because of that, therefore, uh, this different viewpoint of how to uh, keep Jews Jewish, so to speak, uh, became the norm. So the uh, go of Vilna had a uh, disciple uh, Rabbi Avrom Danzig, who, by the way, is buried next to the Gone. Uh, the uh, the Gone's remains were the, the, the Russian communists when they controlled Lithuania in their great sensitivity and uh, progressiveness. So they converted the Jewish cemetery into a soccer field and leveled it so that what the Nazis didn't do, they completed. Uh, Rabbi Tietz, the Colonel of of Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, through uh, his uh, political influence through senators in the United States, etc., received permission from the Russian government to uh, exhume six bodies and rebury them. So one was Dagon, and one was Rabbi Avram Danzig. And then there was the Geert Sedek, there was a famous uh, count, a Lithuanian nobleman, who converted to Judaism and was burned at the stake by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, So uh, the count, from his grave there grew an enormous oak tree, which was the symbol of the Jewish cemetery in Vilna. Uh, Naturally, when the, the communists took down the oak tree, but the, the, the Gert Tzedek is also buried. There. there are six graves in a row there in the Vilna Cemetery that Rabbi Teitz was able to get the government to exhume. He told me personally that the, that when they took the gon, the gon's body was still whole. So in any event, Rabbi Avrom Danzig takes the Shulchan Orech because the, the Shulchan Orech is... The work of Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 1540s. It was modified by Ramoshe Yisraelish. It was made Ashkenazic friendly by him. And the Shulchan became the basic book of the Jewish people regarding halacha. But the Shulchan piled upon itself. Jews love to do this. It piled upon the Rabbi Yosef Karo said, and the Rambam said, for instance, you have my book, you don't need any other books. So the Lord heard what he said, and there are thousands of books about the Rambam's book that you don't need any other books for. So the Shulchan Aruch, the same thing. Uh, 300 years after the Rambam, 340 years after the Rambam, so Rabbi Yosef Karo says, I'm going to make the Shulchan Aruch. If you have my book, every Jew will know what to do. Every halacha is decided. Every opinion is quoted. Perfect. Well, so it accumulated in the next 300 years, uh, commentary upon commentary, super-commentary upon super-commentary, until the book became only the uh, province of scholars. The ordinary Jew couldn't deal with it, because it's so heavy with uh, scholarship and with commentary, and also... uh, you no longer had a clear definition of what the halacha would be, because you had so many great uh, scholars over the centuries uh, who either agreed or disagreed or had a different opinion. And then you also had new situations which arose that the Shulchan Aruch didn't deal with. Simply technology changed, uh, lifestyle changed, uh, all of these things. So Rabbi Avram Dantzig, in writing the Chayi Odom, that was his, the name of his book, uh, made an abridgment of the Shulchan Aruch. And he just said, do this, do this, do this, do this. Cut out all of the commentaries. Well, that didn't last too long, because then people started to make commentaries on the Chayi Adam. And uh, because of that, uh, there arose in Lithuania, this is, we're going to get to the topic, don't get nervous, <laughs> we're going to, uh, er, there arose in Lithuania uh, a Jew uh, rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein, who was the rabbi of Navaradoc, was a peanut of a town, But it uh, later became famous because it had a famous Musar Yeshiva, the Navaradaka Yeshiva there. But the town was very small. But the town always had great rabbis. Rabbitsko Chonin Spektor, who later became the Rovankovna, was first a Rov in Navaradaka. It was a, was a very famous town, even though it was a small town. Why did the rabbis like to be a Rov in a small town? Because they didn't want the pressures of being a rabbi. In uh, Beit Knesset HaNasi, they don't want to be in a big city. They don't want, you know, uh, that hundreds of people should have access to them. They want to sit and learn, or they want to write. So therefore, they look for quiet places. They look for small towns. The fact that none of those towns could afford them a living made no difference. My father-in-law, blessed memory, he was a roving a town that had 41 families. 41 Jewish families, 19 non-Jewish families. That was the town. And his wages were, they gave him a goat. And my mother-in-law would milk the goat every morning, right, that had milk. And uh, she would sell the salt and the candles, and that was the, you know, that was the salary. But it was a wonderful place. It was small, it was quiet. And he could learn and he could do whatever he wants. Then he ends up in Detroit where he doesn't have a minute to himself. So in the varadok Rabbi Achiel Michal Alevi Epstein writes a monumental work. You know the Shulchan Aruch. This is the Aruch HaShulchan. In which he decides everything. And He wrote it on all four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of style, of language, of content, and of decision. He took things on his shoulder. He said, you know, it's allowed, not allowed. He did it. The rabbis in Lithuania went up the wall with the Aruch HaShulchan. That was the book that they used. They didn't use the Mishnah Brewer that we're going to discuss. They use the Orecha Shulcha because he was a practical rabbi and therefore it's written differently as we'll see than the Mishneh Brura where the Chaim never held any public position in the Jewish world. He was not a rabbi, he was not a Rosh Yeshiva, he was the Chaim. He was a holy man. But that's a different, a different background and a different overview. Uh, than being the rabbi in the town. So the Orchai Shulchan uh, swept the boards. However, uh, the Orchai the Shulchan came out and began in the 1860s already to come out. They came out always volume by volume, and the, the rabbis themselves traveled to sell the book. They didn't have, like, bookstores or agents so uh, even though the the rabbinic world was aware of it, the Jewish world was not much aware of it. The Chafetz Chaim, Meir uh, Kagan, who lived a very long life, almost a century, and was active almost till till his last day. Uh, the Chafetz Chaim, in his youth, and when he in his late twenties, thirties wrote his famous work, Chofetz Chaim. Chofetz Chaim was a shulchan aruch on the laws of Loshon Hora, of slander, of uh, bad speech, of gossip. He made a whole shulchan aruch on that one subject, something which had never been done before, and he put it out anonymously, without a name. Didn't say who the author was. But after a while, people figured out who it was, and his reputation as a holy person grew. So he wrote other interesting books. He wrote—he's uh, the first one that wrote a book how the Jewish immigrant in America should behave in order to remain Jewish. It's called Nitche Yisrael. In it, he says, if you have to work on Shabbos, don't write, don't handle the money. Minimize the Chilu Shabbos. It's interesting that no American rabbi wrote a book like that. And he wrote uh, a book, Avas uh, Chesed, the obligation of Jews to be good, to be sensitive to others. He wrote a book, Shmiras Haloshon. And he was already world famous. He was a friend of Reb Chaim Ezer Grijensky. Rabbi Ezer was the chief uh, leader of the Jewish Orthodox world in Lithuania. He lived in Vilna. And so he was a Talmudic genius. So in the yeshiva world, they said that Rabbi Ezer was a tzaddik, but his genius blinded everybody to his tzitkas, to his righteousness. And the Chofetz Chaim was a tzaddik, but his sitkus was so great that it blinded everyone to his scholarship. So that they held him to be a holy man. Now, he, uh, seeing the situation, sensing the situation in Lithuania, and he sees that the uh, basic hope uh, lies in the yeshivot. The yeshivot would produce leaders who in turn would be able to influence the public. It would be a, 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 a matter that, a uh, cumulative matter, and that only the yeshivot would save the Jewish world. And therefore he made a yeshiva in Raden, in his own hometown, but he was not the Rosh Yeshiva. He had uh, a son-in-law, who was a tremendous genius Rabbi the uh, Levinson, Hirsch Levinson who was well known he was a tremendous genius and he was like six foot four and the Chavis Chaim was like four foot six my father-in-law said when they walked together you know, had, you know like the, the non-Jews would line up to see the sight and uh, he together with his son-in-law had this idea that they were going to make a definitive halachic work on one section of the Shulchan Aruch, on the section of Orachayim. Because Orachayim is the most practical section that people need. It has all the laws of prayer, the laws of Tfilm, the laws of Tzitzis, the laws of Shabbos, the laws of Yontev, the laws of Pesach. All of those laws are in Orachayim. He said, "That's the part that we have to concentrate on." So in effect, he was imitating the Hayodom, but he was going to do it in a manner that was made for the yeshivas and not just for the, so to speak, the plain people. In certain yeshivas, even today, uh, Chaodom is the text that's used for Aloha, I know and tells it still is. But in most yeshivas, it, uh, it's on the shelf. So he sets out to write this monumental sefer, the Mishnah Burra. Now, he didn't write it by himself. His son, Rebar mm-hmm. Yuleib HaKo'ein Pupko, the Chavitz was called Kagan. His son was called Pupko, the famous Pupko family in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and other places in the United States, because his wife's maiden name was Pupko. And it was very common under the Tsar to give your child a different last name. The rule under the Tsar was that if you were the only son, you didn't have to go to the army. So man had six sons, so all of them had a different last name, and they all were only sons. And that was very common uh, in, uh, in Lithuania and in other parts of the Russian Empire that in order to avoid the army, people took different last names. Now, there was one other book uh, before the Mission of Brua, written by Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, who was in Bohemia, in uh, Central Europe, Slovakia, later uh, close to Romania, uh, called the Kitzer Shulchanoruch, the abridged Shulchanoruch. Now, in uh, Lithuania, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch did not gain much popularity. But in Central Europe, uh, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch was very popular. And it also attempted to do the same thing. It attempted to give the Jew an understanding of how to behave without having to resort to the scholarship of plowing through the large Shulchan Aruch itself with all of its super commentaries. So Rehoboth Chaim and his son-in-law, so his son, his son Rehoboth Pupko, wrote a biography of his father and in the biography of his father he says that the Mishnah Brewer was written by committee. In other words, Rehoboth Chaim was the general editor but there were people that wrote it and it was mainly written by his son-in-law whose name does not appear in the book. He says, therefore, sometimes you find uh, contradictions in the Mishnaburah. In one place he says to do this, and then in another place he seems to contradict that. He said you shouldn't be surprised because different hands were used to uh, compose it. But the Chovetz Chaim is the general editor, and he's the one who took responsibility for it. He took such responsibility for it, I have in my home... In my library, an original copy of the Mishnah Brewer, the first edition. At the beginning of the book, the Chafetz Chaim's handwriting, it says Muga. I looked over this book and I see that it has all the pages. Because he wouldn't sell a book that, you know, that, that, that didn't have all the pages in it. So he looked over every book and he wrote Muga in the book. That he was the one that looked it over. And here uh, I want to discuss with you how this affected the Jewish world. But first we should hear some ideas from his own introductions to the book. He's telling you why, what it's here. Why is it here? He says, in our time, people don't believe in eternal life anymore. It's the here and now. And he said that's a basic tragedy because that tragedy is what negates a Torah way of life. If a person thinks that this is all there is to it, so then uh, there is uh, no reason for good behavior. There's no reason to observe the mitzvot. There's no reason for Jewish tradition and no reason for anything. It's part of the great problem that the secular Jewish world has why to remain Jewish? What, for what? So he says, the Torah wrote to us and said, Eschukosai Ushmartem eschukosai You shall observe my statutes and my commandments, Asher Yase hodom That a person should perform them, V'chay Bahem and he will live through them. So he says the interpretation of v'chay b'hem, da'henu bechaye alma. It means eternal life. And therefore, if we're talking about eternal life, so if I want to give you the gift of eternal life, we say in the bracha when we uh, by the Torah v'chaye olam nota b'sochino. God implanted within us eternal life. So if I want to give you eternal life, I would think that he says that people would be interested, right? The Gemara says, uh, uh, that was the basis of his book about the uh Lush and Hara. The Gemara says that there was a peddler in the street, in, you know, in Machne Yehuda. And he was selling... Man boy chayai, man boy who wants life? I'm selling life. So there was a long line. People came up and they thought he has, you know, a potion, an elixir, a magic pill. So they said, so what what did he want? How do we have eternal life? So he said, the posig, Miyoi Shechhofe Shahim, Oevyomimli stove. You want to live long? Don't talk. Don't talk Don't talk about others. That's eternal life. So just as the book, the Chofetz Chaim, was based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life, now this book is also based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life. How is he going to sell you eternal life? He says the Torah and the observance of mitzvahs is the sustenance for a person's soul. Just as a person's body needs sustenance, right? That's why pizza was invented in the world. So we have also a person's soul needs sustenance. The non Jewish world, the soul of the non Jewish world, has one type of diet. And the Jewish soul has another type of diet. And the diet in the Jewish world is Torah and mitzvahs, the observance of commandments. And he says, therefore, the bread that sustains the soul are the halachos, and the wine that sustains the soul, because it says in the Pesach, go eat my bread and drink my wine. That's where the Christians took all their nonsense from. So the bread, l'chul l'achmu es l'achmi, shesu es yeni, so the Chovetz Chaim says, the bread is knowing the halachas, and the wine is knowing the secrets of Torah, the spirituality of Torah. And those are the two things that sustain our soul. So he says, so when a person passes from the world, so if the soul, so to speak, has been sustained in a good shape, so then... In the world to come, it also is in good shape. But if no one took care of it in this world, so then it's atrophied. uh, It's without any power in the world to come as well. And because of that, therefore, he said, I want you to know that I'm going to explain to you how to observe the commandments of the Torah. That's the purpose of his book. By observing the commandments of the Torah, you feed your soul. And by feeding your soul, you guarantee your eternity. And he says, now in our time where Shulchan Aruch is so difficult to read, to learn, there are too many super commentaries, he says. And another problem is, because of the fact that even if you know all the super commentaries, you don't know what to do because there are so many that they disagree with each other. So then what do you do? So he has this great plan that he's going to clear it up. At least as far as the Orachaim is concerned. And that that's the basis of what he is writing. So here you have a book that becomes your rabbi my father-in-law told me many many times my father-in-law grew up in the house of the Chofetz Chaim so he knew him very well he said somebody would come to the Chofetz Chaim and say "Rebbe, you know on Shabbos am I allowed to do this or not so the Chofetz Chaim would answer we have to look it up in the Mishnah Brewer let's see what the Mishnah Brewer says so he himself encouraged the idea That it's not the person that answers, it's the book that answers. And that is the sea change in, and we see it today, right? In our time in the Chazonish, etc. It's the book that answers. It's the book that contains the information. And the book is accessible to all. He had a great library. He lived a very a life of almost abject poverty, but he had a great library. And because of his library, he says in his introduction that he was able to uh, uh, amass a great deal of knowledge, a uh, great deal of research went into this, and he's able, therefore, uh, to do uh, what's, what's necessary. The main part of the Mishnabrura concerns itself with Shabbos, with the halachas of Shabbat. And he has an introduction about the importance of Shabbat. It's almost heartbreaking. And we live in a time where our hearts are broken already, so it's not as heartbreaking. But in Eastern European society, where the Shabbat was sacrosanct, where it was holy, where uh, you have to describe how the Jewish world was. For instance, in Salonika, where Jews controlled the port in Salonika. The Jews were the stevedores, they were the chandlers, the suppliers. They controlled the port. And we're talking Greece, Svartic Jews. The port was closed on Shabbat. Closed to everybody. In Gibraltar, till today most of the commercial ventures and stores, etc., are closed on Shabbat. So that even the non-Jews don't open their stores because that's the day off. All of a sudden, in the 1860s, 1870s, all of this begins to be swept away. Public desecration of the Shabbat enters into the Jewish world. Something which almost never happened in the exile. Uh, there were, always were Jews on all levels of the spectrum, at all uh, ends of it. So you know, some were more, some were less. But uh, the Shabbat was a Shabbat. If you lived in a Jewish town, you knew it was Shabbat. And you didn't have uh, you know 15,000 cars going down Rehov Ramban. Didn't exist. And they see it being swept away in front of their eyes. And they're powerless to stop it. And in the United States, uh, the Shabbat fell almost immediately when they went off the boat. No matter how hard they tried to remain. I remember in my father's synagogue in Chicago, and we're talking uh, in the uh, 1940s. I was one then. So... uh, You'll you get it, yeah. So uh, they had my my we had two minyanim on Shabbos. There were 750 men that attended each minyan. It was a tremendous shul. My father was the rov. So they had the hashkoma minyan and the regular minyan. The hashkoma minyan was at six in the morning, and the regular minyan was at uh, nine. So I remember as a little boy, I was going, and my father's holding my hand. I'm walking up the stairs to the big shul, and there's like 750 men pouring out of the shul. And so I said to him, Daddy, what, who, you know, who are these guys? I mean, what are, you know? Because we had another 750 men coming for the second minion. And he said, Beryl, don't ask. You don't want to talk about it. But I, in my precocious genius, figured it out because I saw the guys waiting to take a streetcar, to take a trolley, to go to work. I had no choice. If you don't come in on Saturday, don't come in on Monday. Their children did not go to Hashkom and Their grandchildren were assimilated, and their great-grandchildren may not even be Jewish. So he writes here an impassioned plea for the Shabbat. And he says you cannot be a Sabbath observer unless you know how to be a Sabbath observer. And he says the laws are complicated. And especially in our time when there's so much new technology, change in society, all of, you know, it's a different world today. He doesn't talk about time clocks about electricity. He doesn't talk about, uh, you know, uh, somat elevators. None of this appears here. But uh, the laws of Shabbat and the decisions regarding that remain the most difficult area in Piskei Haloche even till today. So he says, if you don't know so he discusses, for instance, there's a malocha of On Shabbos, you're not allowed to pick, uh, let's say, bones from the fish. That's why, that's the origin of gefilte fish. And here they love it because they grind the bones in it too. And, you know, so you get the full flavor. But why did they have gefilte fish? because of the fact that they were afraid that people would pick the bones. And by picking the bones, so there's an Isra of Borer, right? It's one of the 39 of us So he said, what if nobody knows anything about the Boer, right? Put on the plate meat and chicken, okay? The guy decides he's going to put the meat away for Shalashutis. So he picks what he is not going to eat, and he wraps it and puts it away. That's wrong. That's borer. What he should do is take what he is going to eat. And the other will be left over. When it's left over, then you wrap it up, and, and that's what you have. So he gives that as an example. So he says if you don't know what borer is... So, you know, so you're a Shomer Shabbos, but, you know, like you did it wrong. And we all know today, I mean, the computer is the primary example. You know, if if you put the computer, you know, I want to reach you, and I forgot to put the dot in. Or I forgot, I spelled your name wrong. Nothing, the computer won't, the email will never get there. Uh, that's the example he says with Shabbat. If you don't do it right, so it never gets there, right? There's no address. And therefore, he says, you have to know. How will you know? He said, well, I give you here the third chilek, the third section of the Mishnah Brewer. It's the third and fourth. It's the largest section of the Mishnah Brewer. And I tell you what to do. I explain it to you. and he, And so he has, because it was meant pretty much for an elite audience. So he, the book is in three sections. One section is the Mishnah Brura, which is the law itself. Then the second section is called the Be'er Halacha, in which he expands upon it and brings all the commentaries and justifies his opinion and tells you what others also think. So that was very popular in the yeshivas. We always learned the Be'er Halacha. And at the bottom he has the Shah Ratzion, which are all the footnotes, all of his sources. So it's a monumental scholarly work, just a monumental work. And it penetrated into the Jewish world, into the Jewish religious world. The rabbis did not use it. I shouldn't say they didn't use it, but they, they will use the Orach And the Orach differed with the Mishnah Brewer in many, many issues. But in the yeshiva world, the Mishnah Brura became the staple book. And eventually the yeshiva world came to control the Jewish world, the, the non-Hasidic Jewish world. The Hasidim never used it. The Lubavitcher used the Shulchan Harav, which is uh, written by the Balatanya, And the other chassidim relied upon uh, the Rebbe. The Rebbe told them what to do. It was still more oral than written. Uh, In our time, that has changed as well. And really, uh, all of the later poskim always begin now with the Mishnah Brura, even if they're going to disagree with it. But they begin with it because that became the staple book. Now what happened to the Mishnah Brewer is what happened to all the other abridgments, is that now we have commentaries upon commentaries upon the Mishnah Brewer. So that it would become encrusted with so many commentaries that maybe our great-grandchildren, somebody will sit down and write another abridgment to try and bring it back to the level that, uh, that you can figure out exactly what to do. Let me give you an example. Uh, He has a discussion here, the famous discussion regarding what we call today the shiurim, the size, right? Like how large a cup of wine do you have to drink at the Seder? How much matzah do you have to eat at the Seder? So here, something happened in the Jewish world. And it happened in the uh, 1730s in Prague. So you had uh, Rabbi Hezcal Alevi Landau, the Noda Yehuda, the great rabbi of Prague. So he tried an empirical experiment. And he, with his experiment, he said, listen, our, the size, the, because the, the Gomorrah talks about that you need the size of two eggs, In other words, the amount of liquid that two eggs will displace. He said he tried it and tried it and tried it. He said, our eggs got smaller. It's not the eggs of the Talmud time. The Talmud time must have had greater eggs because it doesn't work. And therefore, what he did is he doubled all of the shiurim. He doubled them in order, because he said the eggs got smaller. That became accepted in the Jewish world, certainly today in the Jewish world, because it was accepted by the Chazonish. Today we have very large, uh, very large uh, shiurim of matzah and of wine, etc., large cups. But if you see, for instance, the Kiddush cup, uh, of the Chofetz Chaim himself which I saw cuz he had a relative in Muncie that had it it wouldn't make the standard today or the kiddish cup that I saw of the Swasems also wouldn't make the the standard today and the Swasems the Ger Rebbe was uh, you know so the Chofetz Chaim writes in the Mishnah Berur I just take this as an example he says uh, it could be the eggs aren't the same size, but he said our fingers are the same size. And the way you get to the size of the egg is by measuring the size of the finger, the etzba. And he said the etzba is the same, so how can it be that the eggs got smaller? And therefore, he is of the opinion that it didn't get smaller. But he makes the rabbinic compromise. He says, if we're talking about mitzvahs minat for instance, Kiddush Friday night, or the four kosas on, uh, the, Kiddush, uh, uh, on uh, the Kiddush cup on Pesach, so then he said, we have to have a big shear, then we'll follow the idea of the Nota Yehuda. But he said, on things that are only the Rabbanan, like, uh, kid is Shabbos morning, so you said you don't need big uh, big cups. In our time, an interesting development happened. There's a professor at bar University of Physics, comes from Detroit. Uh, his name is Greenfield. I mean, we knew him as Buddy Greenfield, but that's That's disrespectful. Greenfield, uh, 20 years ago, published an article in Moria in which he said that the whole problem with the shiurim is because they measured the finger wrong. They measured the finger lengthwise, and chazal meant to measure the finger widthwise. And if you measure the finger widthwise, the eggs never got bigger, never got smaller, Oh, uh, you know, like the whole problem disappears. Well, you know, when that hit the fan, uh, so uh, the uh, the himself, the great the stippler, Kanyevsky, wrote against it, saying because he said he can't say the Chazon was wrong, that he didn't that he measured, but Greenfield didn't give up. He wrote against. The, he 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 replied, and then Rav Kalman Kahane, who was the Rav of Kibbutz Chofetz Chaim. And it was a Talmud of the Chazonish, it was from Poliagodis Israel, so he wrote again, it a, it's a whole liter- there's a whole literature on it today. But the Burra in effect, ignored the problem, and he put the problem into the Be'er Alocha, because the Be'er Aloche is where the yeshiva guys are. So they, you know, they'll do all of these things, but for the plain people, he ignored it. But today, again, since the yeshiva world controls the Jewish world, so then everybody's got to drink it. Everybody has the big shiurim. It became de rigueur because of the fact that that was how the yeshiva world looked at it. He writes many times that you have to ask the experts. For instance, uh, we have a din in Hilchus Pesach, not to eat sugar. The Ramos says, sugar. So their sugar is not our sugar. And the reason for it was that they would dry the sugar in ovens. Both beet sugar and cane sugar. And they dry it in ovens that were chomets. So therefore, the sugar was not uh, used. So the Ramos says in Hilchas Pesach uh, that we don't eat uh, sugar. He says, however, if you can be sure that it never touched, never came to contact with chametz, you could use sugar. So, the, so the mission of so so because of that, for a century, two centuries in Eastern Europe, they didn't use sugar on Pesach. I, I mean, I uh, today's Pesach is. Uh, you know, is beyond anybody's dreams. Uh, I come from a Pesach where we ate, uh, you know, chicken and potatoes for breakfast. We had eight days in a row of flayshikhs three times a day because, you know, how could you? There was no. How could you have the cheese for Pesach? What, do you thought, what are you talking? What you going? You know, couldn't be. So that was in my house yet, I remember. And today, you know, I see by my children or my grandchildren, you know, if you don't have the, 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 uh, the latest, uh, you know, candy thing, you know, so it's so Pesach, right? They can How are they going to exist? So the world has changed. So the of Bird discusses here sugar. So he's discussing sugar in 1870, 1880, which is not sugar in 2006. But it certainly was not sugar of the Ramah in 1545. It had also come a long way. And therefore, he says, you should know, You've got to ask the experts how they make sugar. You can't in the halacha. You have to know what you're doing. So you have to ask them. Then he has a whole question about snuff tobacco, which in the Shmek Tabak, which in Eastern Europe uh, Jews used, and it was addictive. It's just as addictive as smoking. And therefore, how are they going to go eight, nine days without snuff tobacco? So there's a big discussion how to make the smoke, how to make the the tobacco good. So he says again, we've got to ask the people that make it, right? So in effect, he's saying, you got to get a hechsher for all of these things. And this is the origin of hechsherim for Pesach. And the first hechsher for Pesach was given by Rabbi Yitzchel in Kovna. He had a member of his community by the name of Rokeach. And Rokeach made Two products. One was soap from coconut oil. I don't know if you remember. I remember my, in my house where I grew up, one side of the soap was red, and one side was blue. And you broke it in half, and the blue side was the milchike one, and the red side was the fleshike one. And it was coconut oil. Nobody used palm olive. Nobody used any. Nobody. That was it. That was the Jewish home. And the second thing that he gave a on is that Rokeach made peanut oil for Pesach. Now, in Lithuania, peanuts was not, were not considered kitnis. The Lubavitchers still today eat peanuts. Somehow it entered into the Jewish mind that peanuts are kitnis, And therefore, there are many people that don't use peanuts or peanut oil. I remember when I was the head of the OU, so the OU, when we had Rakeach, we always used to give the Heksher for Pesach even on the peanut oil. And pe- the people called me, and rabbis called me, and they said, how can you give the hexagram on peanuts, peanuts? So I told them, I said, listen, Rabbi Yitzchel gave the Heksher. So barrel wine is going to take off the Heksher. Are you out of your mind? I said, uh, you know, I'm going to meet him one day, and he's going to say, you took off the Heksher? Uh, I said, so don't buy it, right? Uh, you know, it's a free country. But I'm not going to take it off.
1: J.M. and the A.M. with our by Beryl Wine and the uh, lecture about the Mishnah Brewer. We will conclude the lecture about the Mishnah Brewer coming up in the early part of the uh, 7 o'clock hour. And then continue with more here at J.M. and the A.M. It's a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Uh, it is Erev Shabbos Chazon as we get set for the observance of Tisha B'Av, which is going to be on the 10th of Av beginning tomorrow night. Tisha B'Av, the fast, will begin at sundown tomorrow night. Shabbos will, of course, end uh Well, and later than that, make sure you have your Tisha B'av footwear ready. Those of you who want information about the um, Tisha B'av virtual gathering that uh, normally would take place at the Isaiah Wall, but this year is happening virtually, you can just email us and we'll send you the Zoom information. It's uh, nalchum at nalchumsegal.com, nalchum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at n a c h u m s e g a l N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. It is the 5th of August, day 8 in the month of Menachem Av. Erev Shabbos Parsha's Devarim. We are now on the same schedule, Parsha-wise, uh, with Israel, thank God. Erev Shabbos Chazon, candle lighting in New York, 7.46. 7.46 is candle lighting in New York. The fast will go through a Sunday night, and we will begin our regular format again on Monday morning. And to start moving toward Shabbos Nachamu, which will be next week, of course. Uh, check out our community calendar online for events that are happening during the month of August as uh, many events will now start to um, sprout up as we get back into our regular format and Jewish music goes back to a uh, regular scene, so to speak. Check out the community calendar, com slash community dash calendar. Uh, we are trying to uh, encourage people to find out if they're a match. For a kidney donation for our dear friend, Dr. Jay Bienenfeld, if you haven't yet inquired about information regarding kidney donation and or how to get, uh, how to go about uh, finding out if you're a match, then please use the following email address, r25555 at renewal.org. Again, that's r25555 at renewal.org. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Exactly. Around the world, the web at and the AlchumSigl Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. <laughs> Gally, it's on the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, expected in the 7 o'clock hour, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Rabbi Yudin from Israel uh, regarding Shabbos Chazon, Shabbos Parshas Devarim, Harry Rothenberg coming up in the next few minutes. He'll speak about Parashas Devarim as well. And um, as we said, back to our regular format this coming Monday, starting at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Galait Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for our Friday is next. We say Boker Tov from
3: JMNM. עליצא לשהשתיים שלום רעב באולפן ראנקו רוצים מה שקרה עכשיו. ימותים אלימים ביצאה דת משבחת גולדינ בออเทף הזה. בלאי משבחתו של סרנ哈登 גולדינ לצד מאוד שלושה סגורה בשל גולדין אמו של הדר אמרה, לא נזוז מכאן עד שאלוף הפיקוד יגיע לדבר איתנו.
4: אלי אזרתו לדנו. אלוף הפיקוד, תבואו עיני, אנחנו לא זזים מפה. אני ממשיכה למחזור מערב, והבית אדם היחידי שהיא, בגללו אני אסכים לעצור, זה יהיה אתה כשאני אדבר איתך ותשכנע אותי שאת באמת
0: הולך להחזיר את הבנים.
3: מדבריה של גולדין הביא כתבנו הצבאי דרון קדוש. המתיחות בדרום. בתום מערכת מצב אצל ראש הממשלה הוחלט להשאיר את הגבלות על תושבי העוטף להתעתה. כתבנו המדיניין ירקוזין מוסר שבדיון השתתפו ראש הממשלה החליפי, סר הביטחון, הרמטכל, ראש השבק וגורמי ביטחון נוספים. ראש הממשלה אמר בתום הדיון, ביטחונם ואיכות חייהם של תושבי העוטף בראש סדר העדיפויות שלנו. אנו פועלים להחזיר אותם לשגרת חייהם במהירות האפשרית, זו האחריות שלנו. כך לפיד. מציג, <מציג> האום ביקר בבית משפחתו של בכיר הג'יאד האיסלאמי בסמה סעדי, העצור בישראל. את יזם שליח האום לאזור הדיפלומטה הנורווגי, תור ונסלנד, בעקבות שיחתו הטלפונית שילשום עם איסמאיל הניה. בשיחה ביקש ממנו חנניה הניה להתערב להרגעת המצב. כתבנו לענני ערבים ג'קי חוגי מוסר שבפגישה הבוקר בבית המשפחה בג'נין נכחו קרוביו של העצור ונציגים מטעם הארגון בגדה. הקרמלי נודיע כי הוא מכיר בדאגותיה הביטחוניות של טורקיה בנוגע לסוריה ודאגות אלה תילקחנה בחשבון בפגישה הקרובה בין נשיא רוסיה פוטין לנשיא טורקיה ארדואן אם זה עוד עובר הקרמלי דימיטרי פסקוב אמר לחטבים כי חשוב להימנע מפעולות שעלולות לסכן את שלמותה הטריטוריאלית והפוליטית של סוריה כתבת חדשות החוץ עומר עזרן מזכירה כי פוטין וארדואן יפגשו בהמשך היום בסוצ'י גם בעניין משלוחת תבועה מאוקראינה דרך تركيا. היום צפויות לצאת שלוש ספינות תבועה נוספות מנמלי הים השחור באוקראינה. מזג האוויר ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות, אך עדיין נשרור אומס חום כבד עד קיצוני ברוב הזורי הארץ. מחר תחול הקלה נוספת באומס החום. אלה החדשות.
1: Jam and the Amorite Barrel Wine series uh, information, the lecture series information at one 800 wein 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, Rabbi com. Here is the conclusion of the uh, lecture on the Mishnah
2: Century, Two centuries in Eastern Europe, they didn't use sugar on Pesach. I, I mean, I, uh, today's Pesach is... Uh... You know, is beyond anybody's dreams. Uh, I come from a Pesach where we ate, uh, you know, chicken and potatoes for breakfast. We had eight days in a row of flayshikhs three times a day because, you know, how could you? There was no. How could you have the cheese for Pesach? What are you talking? Th- what are you going? You know, couldn't be. So that was in my house yet, I remember. And today, you know, I see uh, by my children or my grandchildren, you know, if you don't have the, 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 uh, the latest, uh, you know, candy thing, you know, so it's always Pesach, right? They can't, how are they going to exist? So the world has changed. So the of Bird discusses here sugar. So he's discussing sugar in 1870, 1880, which is not sugar in 2006. But it certainly was not sugar of the Ramah in 1545. It had also come a long way. And therefore, he says, you should know, you got to ask the experts how they make sugar. You can't pask in the halacha. You have to know what you're doing. So you have to ask them. Then he has a whole question about snuff tobacco, which in uh, the Shmek Tabak, which in Eastern Europe uh, Jews used, and it was addictive. It's just as addictive as smoking. And therefore, how are they going to go eight, nine days without snuff tobacco? So there's a big discussion how to make the smoke, how to make the the tobacco good. So he says again, we've got to ask the people that make it, right? So, in effect, he's saying you got to get a hechsher for all of these things. And this is the origin of heksherim for Pesach. And the first hechsher for Pesach was given by Rabbi Yitzchok Chonan in Kovna. He had a member of his community by the name of Rokeach. And Rokayach made two products. One was soap from coconut oil. I don't know if you remember. I remember my, in my house where I grew up, one side of the soap was red, and one side was blue. And you broke it in half, and the blue side was the milchike one, and the red side was the fleshiger one. And it was coconut oil. Nobody used palm olive. Nobody used any. Nobody. That was it. That was the Jewish home. And the second thing that he gave a hekshar on is that Rokeach made peanut oil for Pesach. Now, in Lithuania, peanuts was not, were not considered kidneys. The Lubavitchers still today eat peanuts. Somehow it entered into the Jewish mind that peanuts are kidneys And therefore, there are many people that don't use peanuts or peanut oil. I remember when I was the head of the OU, so the OU, when we had Rakeach, we always used to give the Heksher for Pesach even on the peanut oil. And pe- the people called me, and rabbis called me, and they said, how can you give the hexagram on peanuts, peanuts? So I told them, I said, listen, Rabbi Khonan gave the Heksher. So barrel wine is going to take off the Heksher. Are you out of your mind? I said, uh, you know, I'm going to meet him one day, and he's going to say, you took off the Heksher? Uh, I said, so don't buy it, right? Uh, you know, it's a free country. But I'm not going to take it off. Until today, the peanut oil still has the OU. So he discusses that, Shaila, in the Mishnah Brewer. So he's trying to get a handle, so to speak, on the things that are occurring by him. He speaks about the peckled tabak. So he said that the problem with the peckled tabak, very interesting, the snuff tobacco needed a hechshar, he said. Why? Why should snuff tobacco? He said because two things they did with it. They mixed it with whiskey... You know, so that when you put it up your nose, you really got the, the, the full effect. All right? They dipped it in whiskey. Or, he said, sometimes they dipped it in non-Jewish wine. And non-Jewish wine is also, you, you're not allowed to have uh, uh, direct benefit from it, etc. So, therefore, he said, so you have to check. The main thing is, he says, you have to check it out to see whether or not, these things are good. And this is the origin of the idea, which is so widespread in the world today that we cannot imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't give Hechsheirin. Right? How could it be? But it didn't start till then. You know, we're talking 1870, 1880. That's when it began. And it's also part of the process of a great uh, processing plants, food production, etc., don't forget, there wasn't, uh, you know, there were no supermarkets, etc. You want you every day you had to prepare the food, and most people prepared the food from their own garden or from their own animals. It's a whole different society that we have, completely different. So therefore, he is, uh, to, we, we could say, he is the uh, creator of the koshers industry, which is a big industry today. Very, very big industry. Now, as I mentioned, this book uh, swept the boards. And it's been republished hundreds of times. Uh, it's been republished so many times that the family gave up trying to enforce the copyright. There was a time when, the, when Mendel Zaks was still alive, the Chafetz Chaim's uh, son-in-law, who was a Russian Shiva in the... Uh, Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzhak in New York. So he had the copyright, and they tried to enforce the copyright. But uh, it, it, it just it burgeoned to an extent. So the book today is more popular than it has ever been. But the book has changed the Jewish world. It's made the Jewish world yeshivish. It's made the Jewish world book-oriented and not the rabbi-oriented. And also it provides a springboard for ideas as to how to deal with new problems because the book took on the new problems of 1870, of 1880, just as we have to take on the new problems of 2006. So it really is a landmark book. It's a book that makes a great, great difference in the Jewish world. And it's a book that, you know, publishers say it has legs to it. It keeps on going, and because of that, therefore, it's of great importance. And by knowing, uh, by knowing, if you're, if you're a missioner, brewer, a Jew, uh, so then he—that's what he promised you, that right—that he would get you uh, food for your soul. So uh, that is really the purpose of the book.
1: The Mishnah Bura is the focus of Rabbi Wine's lecture, and uh, we thank him. It's uh, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. It's Erev of B'Av, but the 9th of Av being tonight and tomorrow is Shabbos, so we're going to be observed Tishabov Saturday night and Sunday. On the 10th of Av, it's Erev Shabbos Parshas Chazon, or I should say Erev Shabbos Parshas Devarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Candle lighting in New York, 746. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Harry Rothenberg has a discussion about uh, the upcoming Shabbos. Here he is at JM in the AM.
5: As Jews, we can handle pain. On Tisha B'Av we recount all the different times throughout our history when nations enslaved us, brutalized us, tortured us, killed us. We persevered. We can handle pain. What's so tough to handle though, is contradiction. When really, really, really bad things happen to people whom we know are really, really good, that can cause us sometimes to yell out, reluctantly, but involuntarily, why? Or whisper it, God, why? But instead, we should try to ask a different question, rather than why. To explain this, let's go back to a story in the Torah. God tells Abraham, Avraham, to leave his homeland and to go to a place that God's going to show him, which turns out to be the Promised Land, Israel. And God tells him there, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. Avram doesn't ask any questions, goes with his wife Sarah. But in order to become a great nation, you need to have a kid. And they don't have a kid. And he's in his 70s, and now he's 85, and he's 90, and he's 95, nada, nothing, still praying, but nothing's happening. But Avram is not asking why. He could easily have said to God, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you tell me to go to the promised land, and you will turn me into a great nation and then not give me a child? Instead, the only question he's asking is when? God, when's it gonna be? When are Sarah and I gonna have a child? You said we're gonna be a great nation. I know what's gonna happen. I'm ready, I'm 85, I'm 90. God, I'm 95, I'm still spry, ready for that little kiddo. When's it gonna happen? And finally at 99, God says to him, now it's gonna happen. This coming year when you're 100, you're gonna have a son. And Avram falls down laughing, crying tears of joy. Yes! I knew it was just a matter of when, not why. I knew it was gonna happen. But that's not the whole story. Because the Torah shares some passages that seem totally irrelevant and unnecessary. Here's what was going on. During all those years, decades, when Avram and Sarah were not having a child, every year or two or three, they'd get a telegram from Avram's brother Nahar. Mazel Tov I had a baby boy. Mazel Tov I had another baby boy. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, 12 sons. Nahar was an idolater, bowing down to statues made out of wood and stone. 12 sons. Not bad. Avram and Sar are bowing down to God, the one God, the true God. Nothing. you think that one time during those years, Avram would have gone to Sinachar, snuck over to his tent, knocked on the tent door opening. Hey, who's out there? Hey, uh, it's Avram. Avram, what are you doing here in the middle of the night? Can Can I borrow an idol? An idol? Avram, aren't you supposed to be the monotheist who believes in the one God? Aren't you the iconoclast, the idol breaker who broke dad's idols? Listen, bro, spare me the speech. Let me borrow an idol. You'd think Avram one time would have hedged his bets. Seemed to be working out pretty well for Nachar, bowing down to those idols, 12 sons. Well, Avram's not getting anything. But not once did he waver in his faith because he was never asking why. It was just a matter of when. And if you look carefully at the recording of those sons of Nachar, you'll see that those 12 sons that he had, eight were from his wife and four were from his concubine those numbers should sound very familiar because a couple generations later avraham's son's son jacob yaakov avraham's grandson had 12 sons and eight were from his wives and four were from his maidservants yaakov meaning avraham his descendants he got the same thing that Nahar got he didn't just get 12 sons he got the shift the 12 tribes just had to be patient not ask why just when. And so when we suffer, when bad things happen, things that look like terrible contradictions, things that don't make sense, they're nonsensical, they're brutal, they're unfair. Instead of asking God why, we ask when. God I know what you did was right and I know it makes sense even though it doesn't make sense to me now. When am I gonna find out what the story is? When am I gonna get all the details that I'll understand? Is it gonna be this year? Is it going to be next year? Is it going to be in five years and ten years? Or do I have to wait until the end of my life, when I get up to heaven? And then I'll get the answers. I'm prepared to wait as long as it takes because I know it's not a question of why. It's just a matter of when. I trust you.
1: Harry Rothenberg on this uh, Erev Tisha Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM in the AM. Wow. Pretty powerful words. Uh, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, will join us coming up. He is um, uh, going to uh, be on the uh, on the phone and we will discuss the weekly updates, some of the things that are happening in this crazy world of ours. That will be coming up here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Yudin is scheduled to join us from Israel. We'll have that for you coming up as well in the 8 o'clock hour. Monday, we get back to our regular format here at JM in the AM. Uh, wishing everybody a very meaningful fast and easy fast as we get closer and closer to the observance of Tishabov, which begins tomorrow night. JM in the AM on a Friday morning broadcast. Listener, Cena's out there, and she says that... Uh, there are two simchas, Baruch Hashem, to celebrate. Happy birthday to my special little Bacher, Yisrael Zev Gifter of Staten Island, who turns eight years old today. YZ, I love you to the moon and back. I hope you have a wonderful day and can't wait to give you a birthday hug in person. And Mazel Tov to YZ's big brother, my number two grandson, Mordechai Gifter, celebrating birthday number 21 on Shabbos. Mordechai, I can't thank you enough for your Erev Shabbos messages. They are so special, just like you. Happy birthday, boys, with much love from Bubs who we know, of course, as listeners, Sina, down in Florida. <laughs> J.M. in the A.M., Essential Classics is the series bar-by-barrel wine. you Sroyl is the name of this lecture and the analysis of that safer, of that uh, holy book. Uh, we'll do as much as possible. We should be able to get to its conclusion by 9 a.m., even with all the interruptions, but we'll see. We'll get to as much of it as we can during this uh, nine days spoken word format here at jm in the am
2: good evening everyone uh, tonight's uh, lecture is the final one in this series about uh, great books that have made a difference in the jewish world and uh, tonight's book is about what is relatively uh not a uh, very little known book uh, but again a book that has had enormous influence the name of the book is Or Yisrael, and it was written by uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Blaser, who is known uh, affectionately in Lithuania as Rabbi Yitzhak uh, He was the prophet in St. Petersburg. Afterwards, he came here to Yerushalayim. He's buried here on 18 Eitim. He was the main disciple of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And Rabbi Sol Salanter is the founder and the uh, real representative of the Mussar movement. Now, Rabbi Saul Salanter did not write any books. He wrote a small pamphlet called Igeret Musar the letter about Mussar. And he wrote letters to his students, but he did not write books. He never allowed a portrait of himself. So we would know almost nothing about him and his personal life if it were not for this book for the Or Yisrael. His uh, Talmud Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, his disciple, uh, gathered all the letters that he could find, about 30 letters, and then he expanded upon it. And he wrote a short biography of Rebusserl Salanter. And when you put the whole thing together, you get a picture of what the Musser movement was about and why it had such a wide influence for about a century. And uh, perhaps we can also understand why, to a certain extent, it has waned in our time and it no longer uh, plays the role that it once played. It says Alanta is 1840 Lithuania. 1840 Lithuania, you have a very strong Haskalah already uh, that uh, exists uh the beginnings of really the secularism of the Jewish people. And in the 1840s, you have Karl Marx, Communist Manifesto, Uh, Jews were very susceptible to it, especially intellectual Jews. Lithuania, more than other places in Eastern Europe, was a bastion of the intelligentsia, of intellectual thought. And uh, you had the the founding of the yeshiva movement with Valozhin and Rephaim Valozhin. So it's a time of great change and great turmoil. And then the question arose uh, to the Jewish establishment, to the rabbis, so to speak, well, what do we do to stem the tide? And it also was a time when the Hasidim put the non Hasidic Orthodox world under siege, because the Hasidim were so much more successful in dealing with the masses. So uh, what happens? So we have to view the Musser movement uh, as uh, the Lithuanian Hasidus, the non-Hasidic Hasidus. And whereas Hasidus concentrated on society generally and was determined to... Uh, Uh, raise the masses and appeal to the masses. Uh, Musser appealed to uh, the person individually. It came to perfect people. In the words of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter himself, reform came to change Judaism. Musser comes to change Jews. And the ideas of Musser, as expressed in this book, uh, are uh, very lofty, uh, but they are also uh, very understandable, and the goals are very appealing. It's a situation that we wish uh, would pertain in the Jewish world. He... Uh, is born in this little town, Salant. Now, in Salant, three great people came from Salant at one time. Very small town. Fifty, sixty families. In Salant, there was a man called Yosef Zundel Salant. Yosef Zundel. Rabbi Yosef Zundel was a disciple of Reb Chaim of Halojah. And Rabbi Yosef Zundel was a, uh, a holy man. But he was, uh, Rabbi Yisrael writes that I do not come to his ankles. And so he was this great, but nobody knew about him. He purposely hid himself. He uh, quotes here in the book, uh, he has a short uh, biography of Yves Zundel as well. He has numerous stories about Yves Zundel uh, riding. They uh, have one story that's absolutely frightening that he was riding in a wagon with uh, rich uh, Jewish merchants who uh, were uh, from Memel. Memel was uh, the Prussian port. Uh, that was the gateway to Lithuania Jews were very uh, active in Memel and uh, he was Joseph Zundel was dressed as a plain simple person he was a poor man all of his life never accepted money from anybody and uh, when he earns money uh, at odd jobs if he had enough money that he thought would suffice, he would leave it with his wife and family, and he'd disappear for a year uh, to study and meditate on his own. So he's riding in this wagon, and the rich people are making fun of him, because they don't know who he is, they don't recognize him, and they mock him, and they make fun of him. And he... uh, He absolutely makes no response. And they were also felt that they were scholars, they were Talmid HaChomim. So they discussed uh, matters of Torah as well. And in their remarks, they said, but what does this poor idiot know about it? They come to an inn at night, and he goes to sleep on a bench. Can't afford to hire a room. And they hire the rooms, And they continue their persecution of him to the extent that they lit a match and singed his beard. And he makes no response whatsoever. They come to their uh, appointed place. They go where they go. He, Reyesa Zundel, goes where he goes. Fine. Three years later, Reyesa Zundel comes to Memel and he is uh, greeted by all the rabbis in town, and everybody comes out to see the great Sadik, who is dressed in the same uh, hat and old coat and everything that he was wearing three years ago uh, on the ride. These rich people also come out to welcome him, and they see him, and they are struck dumb because of the way they treated him. So they come to apologize to him. So he said to them, he said, Listen, the beard grew back, and I have no complaints against you. I'm Mokhil, you, I forgive you completely. He said, But I want to give you one piece of advice study this.'" If you would study Musa, you could not behave the way you behaved. And this really was his uh, mantra in life, Rabbi Yasef Zundel. When Yasef Salanter was yet a young boy, uh, he was fascinated by Rabbi Yasef Zundel. And he uh, followed him into the forest one day where Rabbi Yisrael Zundel would go to Davin Mincha, and he observed him from afar, his uh, soul pouring out to God, and Rabbi Yisrael thought for certain that he went unnoticed, because he's hiding in the trees. And when uh, he finished uh, the prayers, he turned around to Reb Yisrael and he said, Young man, study Mursa. And Reb writes that those words entered into me like an arrow shot into my heart. Now, Reb Yisrael was a genius. And because he was a genius, he had the ability uh, to really put the elephant through the eye of a needle. And he was well known for his ability in Pill Pool and being able to take disparate subjects and tie them together somehow. Uh, The famous story told that he once came to, uh, the the custom was, unlike today's world, when the speaker uh, came to speak, so he put a list of sources on the bulletin board so that the people a day in advance would be able to familiarize themselves with uh, what was going to be discussed and be able to participate in the uh, deep lecture that was going to be given. Of course, it doesn't work with people like me who, until uh, three minutes before the lecture, haven't quite decided what we're going to say yet. But so if you saw put up The day before, he's speaking in this town, he puts up the list of all the sources. Uh, Pranksters in town took down that list, and they put up a new list of seven, eight sources that literally had nothing to do one to another. Abisar walks in to deliver the lecture, and he looks and he sees the list. So he stops to examine it for two or three minutes and then he delivers the lecture on the new list and he put it together. So he was uh, he was renowned for his genius, but he said, after Absundel told him, study Musa, he gave all of that up. He said, that's just a show, that's not Torah, that's not truth, that's just mental gymnastics. And he said, it's ego. And from then on, he changed completely his style of learning and his style of teaching as well. On his final year, he was invited, he died in Königsberg, in Prussia. He was invited to give the Shabbos Shuvah, the traditional joshua that the Rabbonim give on Shabbos Shuvah, on the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he mounted the podium, and he forgot what he wanted to say. And he put his head down on the lectern and wept. And then he said, you see what happens to a person, so get yourself ready. And that, his students wrote, that was his most famous Shabbos Shuvah uh, lecture that he ever delivered. Now, his idea was that the study of Musser, and what we mean the study of Musser, that again he got that from Rabbi of Zundel. By the way, the third uh, rabbi out of Salant is Rabbi Shmuel Salant, who was the rogue here in Yerushalayim for 70 years. And who was a son-in-law of Rabbi Yezid Zundel. Rabbi Yosef Zundel also came there to Israel, here to Yerushalayim, and he's also buried on Arasais. So, uh, he, Rabbi Yezid Zundel, when he said goodbye to Rabbi Chaim Valozhiner, so he asked Rabbi Chaim Valozhiner, what should he do? Well, give him a curriculum. So Rabbi Chaim also told him, Study NISR And he said, which book? And he said, the Mesilas Yashorim is the best book to start with. And we discussed that in the first lecture, the impact of the Mesilas Yashorim, of Moshe Chaim Litzata's work. So, Rabbi Yisrael instituted a program for the study of Nisr for the self-perfection of people. Today we would call it anger management. Uh, Today we would call it uh, uh, to cure people from uh, compulsions. Myself was a great psychologist. He understood people and understood people's drives, but not in the terminology that we use today, but certainly in the problems that existed. And... uh, woman once came to him to complain that her husband abused her. What should she do? He said, uh, either divorce him or get him to study Musr. Meaning that if a person worked upon oneself, he did not believe that people have incurable characteristics. That people cannot improve themselves. People don't want to improve themselves. That he believed. But that they can't, that he never believed. And therefore, that was his stress on the study of Musser, That was his stress on self-improvement. So therefore, he created uh, uh, Musser houses. Musser, like the city had he created the Lithuanian counterpart to it. That not in the synagogue, not in the yeshiva, but in a separate building, at appointed hours, people would come and study Musa together, the books of Musa, those were the four basic works of Musa, the Mesir of the Chovas Halavovas, the Orchah Sadikim, and the Sharei Tshuva. Those were the four basic books, which have remained till today, the four basic books of Jewish ethics and character traits. And they would study it together for an hour, two hours, and he always believed that they should study it emotionally, and they should say the words out loud, not silent reading, because part of his educational system, and that explains, you know, why, for instance, if you walk into... Uh, the Beit HaMidrash of any major yeshiva in the world, it's noisy. Because his basic idea was that if your voice and your physical body is involved, and then somehow it penetrates into the soul. Well, if you just sit and read silently, so then uh, it's purely an intellectual exercise. And Musa, he said, has to be an emotional exercise. As such, he spread Musa into the yeshivas. And that was a great controversy, because the yeshivas said, what do we need Musa for? We've got the the Talmud to study. And this was part of the struggle, because he said, Again, as outlined and explained in the book, he said, De'ercheretz kodbo no the Torah. De'ercheretz means, in his definition, good human behavior. And if good human behavior is not present, he said then the Torah itself loses a great deal of value. And unless, the, the, he said, the Torah has to find its home within good people. And the only way you become a good person is by painful self-analysis, by realizing what is wrong with you, what your weak points are, and working on them to strengthen yourself. And he listed all of the things that people have as weak points, the greed for money, uh, the... uh, the uh, drive to fulfill every physical desire, the pursuit of luxuries, anger, uh, being jealous of others, talking about others. The famous incident with him with a great rabbi, who uh, that great rabbi had the uh, habit uh, that he would belittle other rabbis which I imagine is not hard to do, but that's what he, thats that was his want. And he was a, really a great rabbi, a great scholar. So once somebody told him uh, that this other rabbi said this and this interpretation of this piece in the Talmud. So the rabbi belittled it. He said, like, well, what does he know? Can't find his way, you know. What does he know? So Yisrael said to him, "Listen." He said, "If a plain person says about the rabbi, what does he know? Okay, that's part of the game. But if a great rabbi says about somebody, what does he know?" He said, "That's murder." And then he said his famous epigram. He said, if people say that a chazan uh, somehow is not learned, or that a rabbi can't sing, so he said that's lush and hara. But if people say that a rabbi is not learned and that the chazan can't sing, he said that's murder. And therefore, he created this entire uh, view of life. And therefore, he said to yeshivas, if we don't have uh, the basis of producing good people, not just producing scholars, producing good people, then it's a wasted effort. And he said, uh, very bravely, he said much of the criticism that comes against us from the outside, from the Haskalah, from the government, from everybody else, all the criticisms about how the Jews behave and how they look, et cetera, et cetera. He said, don't reject it all. A lot of things they say are true. And we have to work to correct it. And not just to dismiss it because, you know, our enemies say so. Which is really a cop-out. Now, all of this made him, as you can imagine... Uh, a somewhat controversial figure. Uh, the, uh, the Musser uh, movement attracted many strong opponents. But it, uh, it survived them all. And it was because of him, uh, in, in his description of Ebisar Salantar in this book, he describes him as being an enormously handsome person, a tremendous amount of charisma, an impressive person. And because of his genius and his Talmudic knowledge and his piety, when he died, the stony uh, effects that he left to his children uh, was an old Tallis and his film. He had no other personal effects.
1: And- JM in the AM with our Beryl wine. The lecture is on the uh, essential classic called Are You uh, Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures 1 800 499 WEIN, 1 800 WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, com. And we thank Rabbi Wine again for his uh, lectures being the focus of our spoken word format during the nine days here at JM and the AM. Always a treat and always an appropriate way to commemorate and separate these days from the rest of our schedule. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, candle lighting in New York, 746, 740, yeah, just about 12 hours from now, 746 candlelighting officially in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are, Shabbos Chazon is this Shabbos, and uh, we'll observe, even though Tisha B'Av begins tonight, because it's Shabbos, we'll observe Tisha B'Av tomorrow night and Sunday. We have caught up on the Parshios with Israel. We're now in sync regarding the Parsha calendar, so it's Parsha's Devarim for both Israel and the Diaspora. And again, Echa tomorrow night, and uh, the observance of Tisha B'Av, Saturday night, Sunday. Monday, we get back into our regular format here at JM in the AM. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. JewishWorldReview.com gives everybody an opportunity to print out thousands of articles about Israel and the Jewish world before Shabbos. And then become uh, as educated as you can over the weekend. Again, go to JewishWorldReview.com. You will find a, a plethora of articles and, and an incredible resource of news and analysis from around the world. JewishWorldReview.com. Check it out. And enjoy. Well, last Friday, there was no weekly update. That was a decision made uh, practically at the last minute because uh, just around 8 p.m. on Thursday night, we became grandparents of a brand-new baby girl. Uh, mazal tov, of course, to uh, Kayla and Binyam and Siegel and to the extended Levinson and Siegel families. And um, at the last minute after that, <laughs> we decided... Uh, To make sure to be at the uh, baby naming, which took place Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh, at the Ral Synagogue on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and um, it was just a few hours after she was born that now our granddaughter, our first grandchild, is known as uh, Esther Liel Siegel. Esther Liel Siegel. My mother, of course, was uh, Esther, and... um, how extra special it has been uh, for us and our family that um, that uh, the newborn is named for my mother. And uh, one of the greatest things about all of this is sharing all of this with all of you. So thank you to the uh, outpouring of wonderful mazel tov wishes that we've enjoyed over the last week. And I'm sure Malcolm was understanding why we had to, uh, in fact, cancel last week's appearance at the last minute. Malcolm honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. honline welcome back to JM in the AM.
6: Thank you, and welcome again to you and the whole family.
1: It is something to, uh, I mean, you and I have discussed this topic so many times, Jewish continuity, um, uh, transmitting values and uh, and tradition and our heritage to the next generation really is an amazing feeling. And I know that you can tell me from experience that it's an amazing and incredible uh, and wonderful thing to uh, watch and enjoy as years go by.
6: The most exciting, and, you know, Shimshon Rafal Hirsch wrote that uh, no generation is judged in its time. We're not even judged by our children. We're judged by our grandchildren right. because that's when you really see come to fruition, the decisions you make and the actions you take, the education you provided your children, that they would pass on, the, the settings, the commitments uh, as Jews, as people. And I think it is a is life-transforming, as you will find out, um, to see that the, as you said, the continuity and the uh, commitment to the future. It's it's something that I talk when I speak about the demographics in Israel and people downplay you know the fact that amongst non-orthodox jews the birth rate is increasing very significantly it's a commitment to the future it's a statement about the future it's why we're here and uh you should have a lot of nachas
1: amen i thank you for that very very much um there's so much to talk about this week. Uh, one of the things, speaking of demographics, it's funny you use that word because uh, we, we don't take advantage, it seems. Our community does not take advantage of certain demographics. You know that there are some major congressional races going on in this country. And uh, at the end of, toward the end of August, just a couple of weeks from now, uh, there are a couple of districts. Specifically, I'm referring to the uh, New York 10th District, the New York 12th District. Um, that have uh, you know the potential for the Jewish vote to have some influence. And when I examined uh, with one of the experts this week uh, why it is that um, so many um, so many uh, communities are being approached and are being courted for these districts and the Jewish community is not, it was revealed to me that I would be shocked, and of course I was shocked at how few Jews in the district actually vote. And I don't know what else there is to say because there's no other action we can take to have the influence that we'd like to have and to have the representation that we'd like to have. I know that this is sort of beating a dead horse because you've spoken about this so many times. But maybe just one more reminder to people about the importance of registering and voting. And now again we see the proof is in front of us that our community could have a potential uh, to, to have great influence in one of the local elections. It, it's uh,
6: so fundamentally important significant, as a commitment to democracy, it's a commitment to the world we want to see. Every race counts. Sometimes you see how in Congress everything hangs on one vote, especially in the Senate now, but even in the House, sometimes it's a few votes that matter. You see the commitment that, it being, that it is being made around the country to critical races, but every race is important, even if it doesn't become the, the focal point of national attention and mobilizations, but you can be sure that the forces that are hostile to our interests even in a city like new york where you have democratic socialists and all sorts of you know members of the squads etc running and people being endorsed by them that the vo- every vote is of vital significance and there's no excuse now with absentee ballots with uh, all sorts of ways that you can do it at your convenience to go and vote and make sure you- your voice is heard because even if it doesn't impact the outcome ultimately or get the outcome that you wanted, politicians look and see who votes and who doesn't vote. If we're not there, then they won't care about us, and we have to make sure that we vote and people be informed and speak to some of your local leadership, find out about the different candidates and why, why where the interests. Uh, for the Jewish community, where the interests for the general society lie. It's very easy for everybody to fetch and to make jokes and to, you know, to criticize, but this is a minimal commitment that we have to make.
1: And uh, in addition to the absentee ballots, the early voting helps with that, uh, maybe even more so. So everybody, please, especially if you're registered, and especially if you're in the districts that I mentioned, uh, pay, ca- pay careful attention to what's going on. And if you're in New York, uh, August the twenty third is the day uh, for the final. Vo- is the day of final voting? That's actual election day for the primary in New York. Again, that's August the twenty third. We'll try to remind everybody as we get closer and closer. This audience, uh, quite clearly, from what's uh, been communicated to me over the last twenty four hours, is very anxious to hear your perspective on the Pelosi trip to Taiwan.
6: Well, we're still living with the uh, aftermath, uh, the live fire exercises are still going on. They've escalated economic and other sanctions. Uh, I think once the announcement was made and the line was drawn, she could not back down and without America losing face. I don't know if from the beginning it was really essential that uh, the visit uh, take place, knowing the current circumstances and the uh, t- the economic conditions, etc. But I think it was very important that China uh, that Uh, We stand up to it. China is eating our lunch all over the world. China is working against America's economic interests everywhere. It is expanding through its Belt and Road Initiative, which has been going on for years. But people don't, and you don't see it because it's not blatant. They don't do things in your face ways that others sometimes do, even Russia, uh, let's say in Iran or Turkey. They're doing it very quietly, subtly, but the results are clear. And if you see what China is doing in uh, Africa, where they are expanding their influence all over and where they are involved in various conflicts and quietly and but mainly exploiting economically uh, the countries and now in South America, they're buying, for instance, huge swaths of land in Peru they are working together with the russians the the iranians the turks who are all very active in south america as we are losing an entire continent and every week another country moves into the bad column we have very few left in the good column bolsonaro of brazil is one and he could very well lose in in the election you saw colombia chile to to costa rica i mean the whole continent being lost china goes in and they're looking for food. So they buy swaths of land and take all the food, the produce out. And I many African leaders who talked about the rape of their countries by by China. So, you know, we look at it in a very narrow perspective, but in fact, it's expanding its influence and it, it, it loans money to many countries that are in need or does projects, massive projects like the ports. And then... They when it comes time to pay two years, five years, three years, you know, and governments think that they got a great deal because they, they get the port and they don't have to pay right away. But ultimately, they all have to pay the piper and they and China collects. And this is uh, something that people don't see and you don't hear politicians addressing. But it's a, a very it's a global challenge.
1: So the food shortage in Africa, the people tend to blame on the Ukraine and the Ukraine situation. People need to realize that there's much more to it.
6: Well, there's more to it in that respect that obviously the Ukraine war does impact uh, the exports to, to um, countries that are highly dependent on them, like Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, you know, it's 70, 80% of their wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. And now the, another couple of ships left the Ukraine bringing, uh, Bringing wheat and other uh, grains to to their ports, but it's uh, it's still we could face this winter very bad situation in many countries.
1: Uh, you think that it, do you think the Chinese are going to uh, uh, ramp things up, an actual invasion of Taiwan, or it's impossible to predict?
6: I don't see an invasion of Taiwan. I do think that they have ramped things up, and uh, we're likely to see. Uh, More of it, um, China will will press the buttons that it feels are appropriate without jeopardizing its economic conditions. Don't forget, they're impacted also by the economic downturn, and they don't want to sever all the ties. They can do a lot to America. They hold a lot of treasuries. Uh, By the way, we see the upgrade in China's involvement in the Intel services of uh, Syria which has Israel worried and the um and, and so it's just symptomatic of the outreach and the growth of their influence in in virtually every region from certainly in, in asia and also in the united states the investments they've made it doesn't really get the kind of scrutiny and coverage that it should
1: Well, could you tell us about the uh, latest IE, uh, the latest al qaeda operative who was eliminated in afghanistan
6: well, it was a it's a huge hit, obviously it, its It is not, I think, comparable to taking out Osama bin Laden. Uh, this guy is the head of al Qaeda operational head, but al Qaeda isn't the same al Qaeda as it was then, but it was a significant move. It was it seemed well executed. It raises questions about the, the government uh, there are allowing in Afghanistan allowing it. They, they claim they didn't know now. That he was there. They're very angry. The United States carried this out without clearing it with them. But it's uh, every time one of these leaders is eliminated, it is important. I know people will say, but they're just replaced by somebody else. The fact is that they can't always replace. You know, Soleimani, in Iran's removal, still has left a deep void, and it's something that uh, Iranians are obsessed with still because they couldn't fill that uh, that position. And you see the some of the deterioration in their uh, intelligence services and their situation, even though it began under uh, Soleimani. So removing the leadership of the cutting off the head of some of these terrorist entities does have a longer-term impact uh, on their capabilities and abilities and sends a message that nobody is safe. So uh, leaders of terrorist groups have to go back underground or you know can't operate the, with the freedom that they would like. So it's an important move, I think, the fact that the United States carried it out and no civilian casualties, all of the those aspects
1: are are important. And uh, you mentioned that it's not the same al-Qaeda as it was back you know, around the time of 9-11, but somewhere I read that membership, uh, the actual number of uh, members, soldiers, I don't know what you call them, of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and the surrounding areas is actually much larger than, than, then, uh, than that period of time.
6: Well, they don't do... Uh, surveys that give us a really accurate picture but there are <clears throat> there are reports and I've seen them as well about uh, uh, alleging that the numbers have increased uh, and you see that first of all the the reports that all these groups are dead that ISIS was dead al qaeda was dead are not true ISIS is recruiting ISIS is building in uh, Iraq and Syria they also suffered some setbacks uh, with attacks uh, on them but they're there, and they, they you know, these are cancers that grow and metastasize, and they're able to to um, mobilize people from uh, different sectors, especially young people, disaffected people, and you see their presence in, in many countries where they can, they're able to pull off, then terrorist attacks, and, you know, they operate quietly, or what appears quietly, but they're usually... Engaged in, in raising money, in stealing money, in holding. In, in Syria, for instance, ISIS and these groups raise a lot of money because they have a protection racket. And people pay to, just to buy them off. And in the meantime, they're assuming more and more uh, wealth and, and building up their infrastructure although you don't, may not see it in a headline, it doesn't mean it's not there.
1: Understood. Uh, we didn't speak last week. There was a meeting between the Prime Minister of Israel and King Abdullah. Any idea what went on at that uh, encounter?
6: Yeah, it's very important. It was the first since uh, of, of Lapid being in office, but again, I saw those headlines, and uh, but he was only in office for, for a short while, so right. it's not exactly uh, as... Uh, but it's important because, um, you know, Abdullah... Plays the offended party all the time. I think sometimes we give in too much to him, but his stability is really vital and critical to Israel. Uh, they, they did come up with creating, I think, what they used to call QIZs, um, industrial zones on the border between Israel and Jordan. That obviously, it will take a long time till it's implemented, but in fact, they, they, it is a, a positive sign of cooperation. Uh, I'm sure they talked about the, Jordan's role on Al-Aqsa and, and most importantly about qu- security coordination because the, what Israel does is so vital to um, the security of Jordan. I mean, who, who holds them up, if not Israel, on, the, on, on those fronts? And the cooperation for Israel is vital as well. And they they also have arranged to open up the Allenby Bridge, which was one of the demands that was being made. And they also came up during the president's trip to the Middle East. So I think they they um, they have worked out an arrangement that will leave it open. I think 24 hours a day. I don't know if it's six or seven days a week. And uh, so there was an, an agenda. That they seem to have accomplished some stuff. And you know, a good relations between Israel and Jordan is really vital for both. And hopefully this will be a positive step.
1: It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio, around the world of web, and MalcolmSingle.com, on the MalcolmSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Doesn't this New York Times headline say it all? As Iran talks of nuclear advances, negotiations with U.S. restart. And I think that 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 basically says it all, that Iran boasts to the world uh, about how, whether it's subtly or directly, uh, how much they're advancing in terms of uh, nuclear capability. At the same time, the United States and Iran uh, continue to either restart or continue their negotiations.
6: Yeah, the negotiations have been ongoing. They renewed the direct talks in Europe, but it's not with the United States, it's with the Europeans in, in Vienna. Uh, Supposedly yesterday, not much happened. And and we know that in the talks that were held in the Gulf, uh, not much happened. But it doesn't matter. First of all, Iran is buying time. Second of all, we again see that the West is exposing its weakness in the whole approach to the Iranians, who only understand one language, which is strength. If you look at the various uh, things that have happened, you cited the announcements by Iranian officials that they're enriching to 60% which is just a blink of an eye to 90%, that the enrichment amounts, the fact that they are putting in the IR-6s, which are the very advanced centrifuges, which means that they have the capacity to uh, enrich much faster. They've advanced the uh, ballistic nuclear site. We know that Russia, by the way, is is supposedly launching a satellite, a spy satellite for Iran, uh, and probably one of the things that came out of uh, Putin's visit to Tehran Uh, And the meeting, the trilateral meeting, which was of great significance and got almost no coverage here, but to see those forces that are engaged in activities that should worry people, um, get not, not get the kind of coverage uh, that it should. They're cracking down domestically. They're going after the Baha'i for instance, and accusing them of spying for Israel. The Baha'i world headquarters are in Haifa for those who have visited the beautiful gardens there. And, uh, you know, a mother that was protesting her son's, uh, imprisonment or death even. And they, they arrested her and they gave her a hundred lashes publicly. They, they are cracking, executing more people domestically. Not a peep from anybody, and you see that they just an ambassador to Lebanon. They're increasing their ties and their activities in Iraq. They they are in a terrible economic condition, and the the domestic unrest is increasing all the time. And rather than exploiting it, we give them ways that they can bypass sanctions, especially on behalf of the. Uh, Iranians, and you know, we, we still see American officials keep playing down the talks in Vienna and the likelihood of an agreement, but you know, for, for the last two years, certainly in the last year, every week we were told this is the last week if it's not by this deadline, that deadline, the next deadline, and this is from the highest level of the government, that it's over, it's not going to happen, and yet now we see that they do renew it. The Europeans are anxious to get a deal at any cost, and the uh you know the the influence of the, in Iraq the influence in other places uh, of Iran continues and threatens us they they're working closer with Russia although theoretically i mean the Iranians hate the Russians because they occupied Iran during World War II and didn't pull out when the british pulled out I won't go into the history of it but there, there's a lot of uh, tensions but we keep sending a message that you have one week, you have a month, you have a few days, it can't go on forever. And it's gone on forever. In the meantime, they made the advances that they wanted. And now they're going to negotiate, and we'll make further concessions to them. It doesn't doesn't work that way.
1: The parliament in Iraq was stormed because of an Iranian-backed Shiite cleric that's uh, uh, being backed as a nominee for prime minister. Is that how it goes? Did I did I say that correctly? It's against an
6: Iranian-backed uh, candidate, right. uh, Muqtta Sadr. Uh, ordered his people, and they have occupied the parliament, which the, the government in Iraq doesn't function. So you don't—I mean, you don't really have a functioning government. So the, it's, there's just delaying what is really essential, because the conditions there are ripe for for the infiltration by Iraq, by, by of Iraq, by Turkey, by others. Uh, certainly, Iran, Turkey is goes after the PKK in northern Iraq, and there's talk that they would want to. Go in and occupy part of it or or you know to cleanse the the, the pkK as they do in in syria and it's one of the interesting sidelights of the three meeting in in Tehran is that they you know they they sit there and talk together, but every combination of the two of them oppose the other they oppose. Iran's expansion in in Syria, they oppose Turkey's expansion in Syria, the the certainly in Iraq and issues along the, their own borders in the north and yet they come together in an anti-American stand and we allow and we have allowed as uh, things to develop with from the UAE's sending an ambassador back to other cooperation that's going on and and the bypassing of the sanctions allowing Russia to export via Iran, from which they make a lot of money. All of these things contribute to to a lack of credibility, and at the same time, changing the facts on the ground, which are obviously of great long-term and short-term consequence.
1: Uh, I read in the Jerusalem Post that the Palestinians are demanding a change in leadership. Is this the the typical, um, you know, people getting fed up with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, or is this now a renewed type of effort to really, you know, revolutionize what's happening there in their government?
6: Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, the, uh, every poll has shown the unhappiness with uh, Abbas, who's, you know, in his mid-80s and is in the... Eighteenth year of his four-year term, and uh, does not want to hold elections because all the polls show that Hamas would probably win in in the the areas under PA control. Not talking about Gaza, where obviously they're in control. Uh, the the dissatisfaction amongst young people. There are movements by Al uh, Qaida, as you saw, started another movement against it, and the um, economic conditions there are are, are obviously very bad. All the money that they get gets uh, wasted. You saw that they increased the payments to some of the terrorists responsible for the death of Israelis. So pay to slay is fully enforced, and they publicly announce it. They publicly challenge us. We just gave them a couple hundred million dollars to the hospitals. To it's not to the government, but the you know we're undermining the impact because money is always fungible, and the, to see that the PA is able to continue to, to, um, to, to take the money, and, to, um, and, and we see that they're also arresting a lot of people domestically. There's been a crackdown on the people uh, in the PA, so unrest regarding the PA is very high. The danger there is that you could end up with um, uh, somebody even worse than Abbas uh, coming to, to power.
1: Yeah, understood. Do we hear anything about the Israel election? I mean, maybe in Israel itself, there's more uh, being reported about the uh, uh, about the the polls and and uh, the the you know what likely is going to happen in terms of the numbers, etc. We don't hear much over here. Has anything happened of significance over the last couple of weeks?
6: Well, the, the reason you don't know hear is because this is really a transition period. Uh, first of all, the new government coming into power and the, and the Knesset being suspended. But the the key is that you have the the primaries coming up I think August eighth we could is the ninth um, the other parties are having their their primaries, and that determines then the order a or large of the order or most of the parties at least uh, we'll see also if uh, there'll be any more mergers or separations within the parties, so it's really internal uh, inside baseball politics at this point uh, until and usually till after the summer vacation, when things really heat up. But till, but till now, there is still, for those who read the Israeli press and uh, see that the statements that are being made, the threats um, and counter threats between the different uh, function, uh, parties. But I think that there is a lot of dust that has to settle, that people get clarified about where they are, obviously on the external threats, with what happened in, uh, with the arrest of the leaders of Pidge, which is very significant, but again, gets little coverage, uh, and the concern about the re- retaliatory strikes from Gaza. Uh, the security situation always unites and gets uh, priority. Uh, but I think you will see the more heated debates and exchanges coming up a- after Labor Day.
1: Did you see the uh, human rights investigator at the U.N. speaking against Israeli membership of the United Nations?
6: And I know that virtually everybody listening is probably yawning as soon as you said it. And the answer is it's very important. This is a guy appointed to be one of three, all three, anti-Israel, having made hostile statements about Israel, even Jews in this case. Um, And it's it's shared by uh, Pule, who has a long history South Africa of anti-Israel comments, and these three are put in charge of the commission of inquiry, which is open-ended, open-funded, open-staffed, meaning they can have as many people as they want, whatever they need, they're supposed to get for as long as they want, meaning they'd go on for years, collecting data and charges against the occupied territories, including Jerusalem and Israel. That's the the actual language in the mandate and the 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 fact is that this guy said stuff that was so far beyond the pale it is justification for the existence of this committee we have been uh, fighting it and you saw that many countries almost all the european countries everybody came out against them it's re- it is serving a purpose in discrediting uh, this commission and the fact that the un will be spending millions of dollars in addition to the two ongoing committees on Palestinians uh, that spends many millions of dollars a year as well. And the, the I think that this will at least waken some people to examine uh, the purpose of the commission and the way it is functioning, maybe to put them on notice, but it won't impact their outcome. They, they've already predetermined. They issued a report already, but they can go to the International Criminal Court with charges. You can be sure they will... I use the word apartheid often uh, because these are people who have used it in the past. So while many people you know, will think, "Why who cares what he says? It matters what he says because this guy is sitting uh, along with the other two on top of what could be a vicious propaganda machine against Israel as the United Nations tends to be.
1: Unbelievable. Uh, just added to all the propaganda that's being uh, promulgated against Israel. By the way, on, on Iran, we—I uh, I didn't mention that uh, because it was a, an item from last week. Um, I think it was a New York Times article about drone technology sales and how much uh, uh, how much Iran is in that business now for countries that are outside the Middle East. And I'm just wondering, like, I- is that because there are certain countries that countries would not sell to, and that Iran is the only seller they can go to? Is that the reason for it?
6: Uh, yeah, that was one thing I wanted to say is that he issued, this guy issued an apology ah. 10 days after he gave the interview. It's a non-apology. It's totally irrelevant. So when people read it, read the, actually what he said, he did not really apologize. And, and uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, all the usual language that we hear from anti-Semites and others when they, when they get caught and, uh, the backlash was so strong, uh, you know, the Secretary General in a courageous way said, you know, he has no control over it, so others did. But there were courageous statements made in the United States and other European countries, and others did. So I just wanted to. There was an important development this yes, week in that regard. And about the drones, yes, they have developed their drone industry because they have no Air Force. And this is Definitely. really a substitute for Iran to fill that gap. And as you know, that they have. They are producing various long-range um, drones and short-range. Uh, Russia wants to buy a thousand, which tells you something about their own internal uh, development and the their ability to supplant what they are losing in the in the Ukraine. And uh, are and the ones that uh, they're looking to sell, both Turkey and Iran are are selling uh, drones, uh, but these can carry missiles. They're not the kind of drones you're buying off the shelf, although some of them are not much more sophisticated, right. but they can carry and launch missiles, etc. So for Iran, uh, as you saw when they attacked in Yemen and elsewhere, they're using uh, drones and missiles because they don't have an air force.
1: And finally, it's amazing to me that the AMIA bombing in Argentina almost 30 years ago always continues to be in the news, and the Mossad now has said that Hezbollah is completely responsible and that the Buenos Aires and Iranian officials and officers uh, should not necessarily be blamed. What do you think of that recent development?
6: Um, I think that it's uh, surprising that they issued that report. Uh, They don't say, and exculpate Iran. Iran was certainly involved in the planning because they were talking about the execution. Mm -hmm and saying that it was Hezbollah that uh, executed it. But you still see that that none of the people have been held to account. Nobody's been brought to trial. There are red letters, and yet, again, some, you know, from Interpol, that they're supposed to be arrested, yet some of those accused travel freely. Uh, There are, uh, you know, really mixed signals in in, uh, Argentina, where they're still holding the plane that um, came from Iran via Venezuela and other stops. Uh, although the crew has been released, and we don't know whether this is really they're really willing to go to the mat completely on it, but it's a plain subject to sanctions, and they're afraid that they get hit by the sanctions if they don't do it. Uh, and it reminds us of the importance of of the sanctions regime. But you know, the government in Argentina is a very troublesome one, as are all the governments in South America these days. And um, there were there was some outreach by the president to uh, to Israel. But I think it's it's um, pretty superficial at this point.
1: Uh, tomorrow night we observe Tisha B'av, and uh, there's one uh, lesson to learn: it's that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. And we look forward to the day when we don't have to fast, and we'll have uh, we'll have uh, you know a a, a a different renewed era uh, in this world and Israel. But I think the most important thing is to remember that we're on the road to that, and I think that. Uh, uh, both in terms of uh, community relationships and personal relationships. I know this is a really important uh, time of year and an important uh, day that, that to concentrate on those things. And hopefully as we move forward, the unity of the Jewish people will lead to a, a unified presence in Israel the way God has envisioned it to be.
6: And, and remember the, to read the Kenan that deals with the Jews of worms who were begged to come back after Galos Babel, and they wrote back and said, "We have you have your great Jerusalem there, we have our little Jerusalem here, and did not respond to the call to come back. And they say that during the Crusades and things, they suffered worse than any other people because of any other community because of it. Yeah. So we, we, it's a reminder to us that as much as we think we're, we're doing well, look at the anti-Semitism, look at the challenges, look at the threats that we face here and around the world, that we not take Israel for granted. And most of all, the lesson that achdut, the lack of unity, and when Jews are pitted against Jews, we pay, all of us pay a heavy price for it.
1: No question about it. Uh, have a good Shabbos and an easy fast, and we'll speak again next week.
6: A meaningful fast to everyone, and uh, yes, to
1: Next week, Shabbos Nachamu. We'll have a chance to speak to uh, Malcolm Honline on Erev Shabbos Nachamu here at JMA. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. It is... Erev Tisha Tishabov. is on Shabbos. We will observe Tishabov tomorrow night and Sunday. Uh, make sure you have your footwear ready, uh, appropriate Tishabov footwear. Candle lighting for Shabbos Chazon at 746 in New York. Make sure you know when things start where you are on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. Erev Shabbos Chazon, this time each every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, Spiritual Leader Emeritus, Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin.
7: Good morning, Nachum, good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. Parshas Devarim does not contain any personal mitzvos it does contain the obligation for the community to appoint honest judges and ouch when unfortunately the lack of honest judgment became the norm that was one of the factors that caused Chorban Beis HaMikdash what I'd like to do this morning is or for me this afternoon who have the privilege of being in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Um, I'd like to first, number one, wish a Mazel Tov to Nachum and Stacy on the birth of a granddaughter, to Kayla and Binyamin They should have a great deal of Nachas from her Tisku, La Gadla. They should be privileged to raise her LeBen La Torah, La Chupa, Ulamasim Tovim. Okay. Now, let's first, unfortunately, review some of the laws of Tisha B'Av and then, a hopefully, a little machshava to bring us into actual tishabav which is tomorrow. But, because it is Shabbos, we do not fast. We will be fasting, unfortunately, this coming Motsod Shabbos, and Sunday now where to begin let's begin with first of all how different it is when Tisha B'av falls out on a Shabbos and the fast begins as we pointed out with sunset the formal fasting begins with sunset just the fasting so on Erev Tisha B'av, for Mincha, we would not say Tachanun. We do not say Tzidkoscha in Mincha tomorrow afternoon. Now that in itself, whoa, why? Because we don't say Tachanun, Tzidkoscha, when the next day is a Yom Tov. Now it's very hard for us to appreciate the concept of Korah Olai Moed based upon the Pasuk in Eicha that Tishabav is really considered now a Yom Tov and as Aleish Shur points out there's a Yom Tov of Kirov which is Pesach Shavuos and Sukkos Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Yom Tovim when we feel and a privilege to have a closeness with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. and as he points out Tishabav is a Yom Tov of richuk that we realize how distanced we are. But still the idea is what that we have a Kesher, a strong bond with Hakadosh Baruch. Hu. Okay. So now notes at Kasha tomorrow afternoon. Whereas in other years, and please God, not in the future anymore, there is the concept of the Sudam Avsekes, whereby a separate meal for which you wash and you have uh, just a piece of bread and a hard-boiled egg and you dip it in ash and you sit low on the ground. None of this is done tomorrow. the is tomorrow. You could have anything you want. You're not limited to... An egg or something that reminds us of morning. If one wanted to have meat and drink wine, they certainly could. I don't necessarily re- recommend it unless you have meat and wine every Shalosh Su'udos. But the idea is that until sunset tomorrow afternoon, there is no restriction whatsoever. The only thing is, I think one would be best. Understandably, to refrain from saying, "Ah, eat watermelon because it's good before a fast," or "Eat grapes because they say it's good before a fast." It might be, and eat it, but don't say, "I'm eating it in order that it should help me fast." The idea being that really we try to have no obvious and no hachana, no preparation. Of Shabbos for the next day. at Shabbos. We don't take our shoes off until Emiratze Hashem in Shul. Right before the, or one second. Right after Baruchu, we uh, take off our shoes. If. There's going to be a later Mairiv, then Say Baruch HaMavdil Ben Kodesh L'chol And After Tseis Take off Your shoes and Put on the appropriate Tisha of shoes It's important That women Especially since we do not Make Avdola Tomorrow night women should learn to say and be taught to say blessed is the one who differentiates between the holy and the mundane the secular and that would permit them to do malacha on Motsa'i Shabbos as I mentioned there's no havdalah what we do have is the bracha of borei milrei which is said in most Bate kaneisios right before the reading of eicha if someone is not coming to eicha they should recite the bracha at home it's probably best for a man to recite the bracha on behalf of his wife now regarding learning Torah this Shabbos so just know that on a regular year when Erev Tisha B'Av falls out not on a Shabbos there's a difference of opinion as to whether one is permitted to study parts of Torah that are prohibited to be studied on Tish Abba'av. And so, while you do find some that would say this Shabbos afternoon as well, I would say that it's safe siding with the Mishnah Brura, who says that uh, one could, all right, rely upon those that because it is Shabbos, there's no restriction and halavai we could and should study Torah this coming Shabbos afternoon Okay, we go unfortunately to Motsa'i Shabbos whereby we know that we sit low we go to the Beis HaKnesses to hear Eicha if one could not hear Eicha in the Beis HaKnesses one could and should recite Eicha at home. Okay, Tisha morning. Besides the idea that there is no she'elah Shalom, you come to shul and you just don't greet people, and that in of itself is a strong reminder to us how we should be greeting people on a regular basis. Okay, there are, as we know, five restrictions of tish abav the same five restrictions that you find on yom kippur namely one eating and drinking two bathing washing oneself three anointing oneself cosmetics four uh, family relations and five wearing leather shoes period okay So just be aware. I'll try to review some of these laws very quickly regarding eating and drinking. To whom does this apply? It applies to everybody. Adults. If I have a 12-year-old boy, an 11-year-old girl, certainly they'd have to fast already on Yom Kippur the whole day. What about Tisha B'Av? So I'm going to tell you that the Arach and most authorities would say they don't have to fast the whole day. Let them fast a little bit so that they partake with the Spirit and they join Klal Yisrael in their sorrow. But listen carefully. Chinuch, which is what we train our children, is for the future observance of mitzvos when they become adults. But we pray that the words of the Novidas Zechariah, chapter 8, that the fast of the fifth month namely Tisha B'Av is going to become a holiday uh, therefore he's not going to have to fast next year therefore there's no and therefore a boy before Bar Mitzvah a girl before Bas Mitzvah does not have to fast the entire day now let's go the other way because of the seriousness of Tisha B'Av and the terrible tragedies which occurred Thereon. Because of this, pregnant women, nursing women should, I believe, number one, talk to your local Rav for direction for each one individually what your situation is. But I say the following go into Tisha B'Av with the mindset that you are fasting. As soon as you have difficulty, stop. No heroics drink and if necessary eat that's an important point okay very important no heroics for this day all right many say that pregnant nursing women should only fast to once again speak to your um, to your local rough we're not to eat or drink we're not to brush our teeth and Uh, We're not to use mouthwash as well. Needless to say, one could and should swallow their medication. Try, hopefully, without any water. And if you need medication, please once again speak to your Rav. Bathing and washing... Is prohibited on Tish Abba'av. In the morning, we wash our hands, Negelwasser, till one's knuckles, shake off the water, rub your fingers through the eyes, and that's it. One uses the bathroom, same thing, they wash their hands to their knuckles. However, if a person is washing not for pleasure, but for practical needs, including in the afternoon, a woman is washing the food that she's making for. Uh, the meal after the fast in the evening, that's going to be uh, permissible. Uh, if one gets their hands soiled, dirty, by all means, they could, should wash their hands on uh, Tish Abba'av. The use of any uh, cosmetics, or ointments, you know, for pleasure purposes is prohibited on Tish Abba'av. One can use deodorant On Tisha B'Av Okay Now learning of Torah It's an ideal We really are To Understand The Pesuk that we say in the Pesuket de Zimra Tomorrow From Tilam Yotes Pikudei Hashem Yesharim Misamchei chelev Which means that Torah really causes us enjoyment. Okay, it's a privilege if one actually derives this kind. And therefore, we are limited as to what we are to study on this Sunday. And therefore, quickly, you can study from the book of of Job, the parts of the Novi Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, written by... Yermiyahu, third chapter in the Gemara Mo'ed Katan, the Gemara in Megitin in Gitin Nun Vav Amid Beis, till Nun Ches Aleph, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Kuvdalid Amid Beis, and the laws of Tish Abav, Holocaust literature is very appropriate for this day because we believe that all sorrows that we have on this throughout Jewish history, including and culminating with the Shoah, all stem from Chorban, Beis, Hamigdash. And that's why, as I mentioned, there's no Shela Shalom, we don't greet one another, and one is to try to have in their mindset on this day to focus on the morning. Now, interestingly, especially since number one is Sunday, with many more people not actually going to work this Sunday, try to stay in shul until chatzos, until mid the day. And um, the opportunity is there. In so many batel kinesios and online, for somebody to he- actually be in shul or follow online the um, the keynotes, so the keynotes are explained. The keynotes are understandable. If you have an English kino, wonderful. And if not, all the more so, try to follow along either online, as I said, or in person, so that you'll be able to relate to the um, kinos. I took a peek in the New York area, Chatzos, this Sunday is 1:01. So one o one, So once you try to stay in shul till, like I said, one o'clock and uh, let it be a meaningful experience. The, the rest of the day, as you know, there are many videos and there are many things that per- person could should do to reflect uh, upon the seriousness of the day. Okay, we remove the parochas tomorrow night put it back on Sunday afternoon we do not wear talis and tefillin on Sunday morning we do wear it for mincha Sunday afternoon and let's understand something that the whole idea of experiencing Tisha B'Av is to, number one, identify with our past, that Lo on this day, both Batei Mikdash were destroyed, but the idea is that pining and yearning for a Beis Mikdash will, Amir help bring about the coming of the third Beis HaMikdash. There is the practice tomorrow night of minimizing the comfort and pleasure of when we go to sleep. And so therefore, if one normally usually sleeps with two pillows, let him try to do it with one. Again, all this is to try to bring home the reality that we are. Okay, we mentioned that we don't make Abdullah tomorrow night, but we do make Abdullah on Sunday night. And, listen carefully, there are those that say that if one has to eat on Sunday, then they should make Abdullah before eating. Interesting, the Mishnah Brewer does not bring this down but it is a widespread practice that that many do and therefore just know that if you're going to eat on Sunday then number one no bissamim, no candle just the bracha of Hamavdil to be recited over preferably Hamar Medina which is either coffee, tea, or perhaps even orange juice, all right? This Sunday night, after the fast, so still no meat, no wine, and preferably no music until Monday morning. However, washing of clothes and shaving would be permissible on Sunday night. Finally, I just wish to close with one idea, and that is, we should realize that we are in Galos. Certainly those who live outside of Eretz Yisrael, we're not home. And so, We might be living many, what you would call, forgive me, comfortable lives. What are we missing? Oh my goodness, we are missing so much. But listen carefully. The institution of Eved Ivri, who works for six years, and then he goes out on the seventh, and if, unfortunately, in the seventh year he says, I don't want to go out, then we pierce his ear. Okay, and Rashi explains why the ear, because the ear that heard, not to steal, and he went and he stole, Ah, such a person has the ear pierced. So the Maral Diskin asks, why do we wait six years to pierce his ear, only if he wants to stay? Why don't we pierce his ear immediately for violating the law of stealing? And he gives a very perceptive answer. He says as follows: that the six years of servitude that the evidence is to be is a punishment. after six years, he comes and he says, "I want to stay. What does that show that this was not a punishment for him? Ah, oh, not a punishment therefore." His ear is pierced after that. But focus on the words that the years of servitude are meant to be a punishment. Golos, exile, is a punishment. We say in the Yom Tov Musaf, Mepnei because of our sins, Golinu we were exiled from our land we are not America is not home yes as long as we have to be there we need yeshivot and we need mikvahos and we need and we need and we need but Tishab reminds us that there is one home and we pine for a Baruch Hu, to be able to return to his home, we should feel the pain of the Shechina. That, as we find in the Gemara Brachos Dav Gimel, that Hakadosh Baruch Hu actually cries that He doesn't have that personal relationship with us as He did when we had a base on Migdash, and as He will when we will have that third base amigdosh so it's an Avelos for ourselves, what we are missing and it's an Avelos for Him, capital H HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as well this is to be a little bit, or forgive me even a lot, of the mindset of what Tisha B'av is really all about, and I pray with all of you that Amir HaShem is going to be the last ninth of of that we unfortunately observe in a state of mourning but please God the words of the, of the Navi Zachariah, chapter 8 posse 19 that promises, strong word I didn't say predicts I didn't say I said promises that please God soon in our day Tishab will become that moed that holiday. And we don't say Tachanun. We don't say Avinum al Kainu for that reason on Tish Aba'av. Wishing everybody a meaningful fast. And please God, we should celebrate soon together Shabbat Shalom and a meaningful fast to all.
1: My thanks, Rabbi Yudin, of course. Uh, wishing everybody a meaningful and easy fast. Som Kal. And a, a good Shabbos. Uh, Shabbos Chazon is coming up. A, um, and I thank Rabbi Yudin for his good wishes on the birth of uh, Esther Liel to um, Kayla and Binyamin. Mazal Tov and thank you. And thanks everybody for the good wishes from around the world on uh, entering the grandparents club. <laughs> it is much appreciated. And as I've been saying over the last week, always remarkable over all these years to celebrate and share good occasions with this audience. Please keep in mind Moshe Yosef ben Shulam Mishana. Moshe Yosef ben Shulam Mishana for Rafuish and we thank you for that. Uh, Monday, we get back into our regular format here at JMN. The topic of our Barrel Wines Essential Classics lecture is R.U. Srel. We're not going to get to its completion, but we could certainly hear a few more minutes before we wrap things up on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Chazon, here at JM in the AM.
2: Because of who he was. But after his death in the 1870s, there broke out this tremendous... uh, It's much like what happened with Maimonides with the Rambam. During the Rambam's lifetime, he was practically unassailable even by his fiercest critics. Because he was the Rambam. But after he died, so then the... Uh, then the battle was joined because there arose a generation that didn't see him, that didn't know him, and therefore were able to uh, take liberties with him. He writes here that there are two things in life that a person has. He has theory. He uses the word theory and what he calls the practic, which is the practical thing, how he behaves. He says, in theory, everybody accepts that you're supposed to be good. In theory, everybody wants to be a good person. Nobody wants to, uh, you know, to, in the, there are very few tombstones in the cemetery that say, you know, this guy was of so-and-so. Nobody says that. He says Musa is the bridge between theory and practice. Musa forces you, so to speak, to make your practice align with your theory. And he says without that bridge you fall in the river. You're unable to make the transition. You, re- you remain, theoretically, a good person. So, for instance, the Muslim movement, Rabbi Saw Salanter is, uh, we could say it in a, in a symbolic way, he's the father of the Chofetz Chaim with Losh He's the father of Avaz Chesed. He's the father of all the Chesed. He's the father of all of these things because those are the things that he emphasized When he said there it's called Malatora concern for others, sensitivity to others, dealing with others. And uh, because of that the uh, Haskalah mistook him for being their ally. That was a grievous error on their part. And what happened was that the Russian government wanted to create uh, modern, progressive Russian rabbis. They wanted to control the Jewish people through their rabbis. So they wanted the rabbis not to speak Yiddish, they wanted them to speak Russian, they wanted them to, to know secular studies, they wanted to create, but the Russian government really wanted was to convert the Jews. And this was a step in the chain that would eventually lead to conversion. Not to study the Talmud. So the Russian government created two rabbinic seminaries. One was in Zhutomir, and one was in Vilna. Now, to give the seminary credibility, You have to have somebody as its head who is recognized as a great person, as a great Talmudic scholar. Now, the Russian government did this in uh, cooperation, in alliance with the Haskalah. See, oftentimes it happens in the Jewish world that Jews are so convinced that they know what's good for everybody else that they're willing to be traitors because it's for a higher cause. The Jewish communists were an example of that. There are examples, unfortunately, in the Jewish world today, and uh, and both in Israel and outside of Israel. People who are literally are traitors, but they're traitors because of a higher cause, and therefore they're willing to support uh, those who are out to destroy the Jewish people. They don't realize that. Until unfortunately it's too late, and one day they come for them as well. So the Haskalah supported the uh, creation of these two uh, seminaries. The Haskalah, Rav Yisrael Salantar is then living in Vilna. Uh, There's a yeshiva, Miles' yeshiva. The successor to Reb yeshiva is here uh, in the corner of Ramban and Ibn Ezra. And that's of Yisrael, of Guzman's yeshiva. The, they took the name, they're the successor to that yeshiva that was in Vilna. Why it's called Reb uh there are a thousand answers, but I, nobody really knows. It may have been somebody by the name of Mila that uh, sponsored it or what. but anyway and so he's uh, he he is teaching in the yeshiva and he has a cadre of students that are very loyal to him so the moskelem told the russian government this is your man he really at heart is uh, is a moskelem he really at heart uh, wants to move uh, the jewish people forward and he's a great talmudic scholar and he's a charismatic person and if you get him Fifty, sixty of his students will come with him. We solve all the problems with one shot. And therefore, you'll make him an offer that he cannot refuse. That night, Rabbi packed up his bags and left Vilna and never came back to avoid that trap. He was extremely wise and farsighted and and had a great ability to assess people and to assess situations. He writes here in the book that people came to see him and they said, Rebbe, what's wrong with me? And he would look at them and he would say, well, you're an angry person. Or you're a greedy person. Without knowing, you know,
1: Rabbi Barrel Wine on the topic of RU SROL from the Essential Classic Series. You can get more information about the series and about Rabbi Wine's lectures at one 800 499 wein one 800 499 wein or RabbiWine.com, Rabbi W E I N dot com. JM and the AM on a um, Friday morning Arab Shabbos. We get back into our regular format coming up on uh, coming up on Monday. Wishing everybody, of course, an easy fast and a nice Shabbos Chazon as we uh, start to wrap things up on a Friday of Shabbos at JM in the AM. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio around the world of women, and, and the Alchemschool Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a uh, Friday Arab Shabbos Chazon here at JMN. Wishing everybody a good Shabbos and an easy fast. We speak again Monday morning. Please, God. Starting at 6 a.m. Eastern Time when we're back into our regular format, have a wonderful Shabbos and again an easy fast. And until Monday, alhumdulillah. Reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.